How would you respond if I were to offer you four crisp, brand new $50 bills Just a minute, Dale, I'm not finished. If I were to offer you four crisp $50 bills, if you would read a certain number of books over the next several weeks, or if I were to offer you, again, the $200 cash, if you would be willing to take some sort of online course with remaining weeks left in the summer before school started, would you be devoted to studying that class assignment? Would you be devoted and motivated to read those books? Some of you would say, yeah, even though I don't like reading, I'd do it anyway. These offers of money, I'll just add to you, are hypothetical. (laughs) So don't look at me afterwards for some sort of deal. But listen, I'm pleased to tell you that there is a rather simple way to gain something that is far more valuable than $200 cash. According to Psalm 119, those who read and meditate upon and put into practice the Word of God find a wealth that far exceeds a stack of multiple large bills of money with numbers of zeros on them. Psalm 119, verse 72 says, The law of God's mouth is better to me than thousands of of gold and silver pieces. We also read in Psalm 119, uh, verse 72, the law of God's mouth, sorry, I rejoice at God's word as one who finds great treasure. And David wrote in in Psalm 19, he said, the scriptures are more desirable to me than gold. Yes, than much fine or pure gold. What would happen if you and I truly embraced that viewpoint? I would dare say that we would be meditating on verses of Scripture throughout the day, that we would be making a concerted effort uh, throughout the day and night to treasure the Word of God in our hearts and our minds. And the elders and I instituted back in September of this last year a monthly memory verse just as a small step to help some of us who find ourselves uh, lacking in motivation and with no real plan on where we're going here, to try to encourage us as a church family to enrich our hearts and lives, to equip ourselves with the Word of God that we can have with us day or night, and to have treasures that cannot be taken away from us. Now this morning, with that in mind, I want you to know that I've decided to devote my sermon to an extended meditation on the verses that we have been trying to memorize from Jeremiah chapter 9 uh, this past month, verses 23 and 24. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to find your way to Jeremiah chapter 9, because we're going to be looking at these verses. Hopefully you already know them and you've memorized them, but maybe you haven't memorized them in this particular translation. You can look in your pew Bible if you'd like, page 911 in your pew Bible, 911. And after I provide a little bit of the background and the setting of these verses very briefly, I'd like to develop two main points 
The first point is this. I want us to contrast in verse 23 where we find several indicators of what it means to have superficial knowledge about God. And there's a number of points we'll make under that particular main point. And then we're going to look at point number two, look at verse 24, and we're going to look for several indicators of genuine knowledge of God. So our first point is indicators of a superficial knowledge about God. The background of this passage in Jeremiah chapter 9, it was written by none, none other than Jeremiah. That's pretty obvious. And it was written during the latter years of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, if you don't know much about biblical history, there was a period of time where uh, the kingdom of uh, Judah was uh, separated from the kingdom of Israel to the north, and the Israelites were destroyed by Syria, and now you have the southern kingdom still in existence, but things are looking very bad. And Jeremiah is there as a prophet and a priest, and he was called by God to warn the people of Judah regarding the impending judgment that was to come, and he's calling them to repent. It's one of his great themes, repent, turn. For well over 50 years, Jeremiah delivered these unpopular messages. He was not highly revered at all. He was the rejected uh, prophet along with many others. And they, during that period of time in which he ministered 50 years, the people proudly were celebrating their Jewish heritage and they were just basking in the fact and confident in the fact that things were going to go well for them because they are, everybody knows, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so here is their audience that Jeremiah spoke to. Here they are assuming that as long as the temple was standing there in Jerusalem in their capital city, they don't need to be concerned about any kind of uh, numerous ways that they were offending God that Jeremiah kept talking about. So here's one of my points now. Under the first main point, letter A, is one of the indicators that a person has a superficial knowledge of God is the tendency to be self-deceived self-deceived. Here these people were self-deceived into thinking that God was obligated to bless them, and therefore, because He was obligated to bless them because of their ancestry, because of the presence of the temple there in Jerusalem, and other things, they are self-deceived. Back up a couple pages to page 907 in the Pew Bible, Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 to 10. This is all part of the background, but it's important we understand what Jeremiah was saying. Jeremiah 7, verses 8 to 10. Behold, you are trusting in what? Deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, meaning the temple in Jerusalem, which is called by my name, and say, hey, we're delivered, we're safe, we're rescued. We have nothing to worry about. We're standing in the temple of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That you may do all of these abominations? They're self-deceived. Those who resided in Jerusalem in Jeremiah's generation refused to heed the call to repent and to humble themselves before the true God who had created them, who had called them, who had redeemed them, and who had sustained them all those years. 
And they saw themselves as what? Hey, we're safe. We're secure. We're right here in Jerusalem. Nothing's ever going to happen to this town. And they had another thing coming to them. And while choosing to ignore the true prophets of God, because, listen, who wanted to hear a message of, hey, things are going to go from bad to worse. You better change your life. You better get right with God. Nobody wants to hear that message. And so that's what they do. Instead of listening to that, the people of Judah turned to the optimistic messages that were given by these popular teachers who happened to be on the scene at the same time. And they taught them what these people wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear all of this message from Jeremiah about judgment. They sought out so-called prophets, quote-unquote, who proclaimed a message about feel-good-about-yourself messages. We have a lot of those around today. Feel-good-about-yourself messengers. And these false prophets offered false assurances and that there was nothing wrong with the self-serving idolatry as long as one kept oneself in the process of faithfully attending the temple and the services offered there every Sabbath. And if you look down at page 910, on, or Jeremiah 9, verses 13 and 14, listen to what Jeremiah says about these false assurances. <clears throat> the Lord said, Jeremiah 9, 13, 14, They have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but have walked after what? The stubbornness of their heart and after the bales. These people have become stubbornly convinced, and they're not going to listen to anything else. They're like putting their fingers in their ears. I'm not going to listen to you anymore, they're saying. And over time, let her be, the consciences of most of those citizens of Judea and anyone else who only has a superficial knowledge of God, over time their conscience became hardened. No longer did they experience remorse or any kind of grief over their numerous transgressions of God's law. They didn't care. And Jeremiah rhetorically asked the question in chapter 8, verse 12, Jeremiah 8, 12, were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed, and they did not know how to blush. They weren't even embarrassed about anything they were going on in their life that was offensive to God. It reminds me of many people in our culture today who have so hardened and dulled their conscience, they don't think that anything they do offends God. Because God must love me, or God must have a wonderful plan for my life, or whatever it is they're convinced of. Another indicator of this superficial knowledge brings us right to our text. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. They have the superficial knowledge of God, because why? Because they are insisting, as the evidence of further of their hardened conscience, of the fact that they are people who are uh, uh, no longer interested in hearing anything what God has to say, and they're listening to whatever message they want to hear, they are also now, as further evidence of that, they are insisting on glorying and boasting in their own achievements, in their own talents, in their own influence, in their own possessions. They are now looking at themselves and saying, well, you know, hey, I'm not all that bad. I'm actually quite good in certain areas. And the people of Judah were, let her see, self 
confident. Self-confident. They were priding themselves on their wisdom, for example. Some people, of course, pride themselves in our world on their SAT scores. Other people pride themselves on their academic degrees. And they want everybody to know that they have that further degree letters behind their name. As if that makes them more significant and more important than other people. Indeed, there are many of us who find ourselves as religious people, and there are many religious people in our world today who do not hesitate at all to to critique the Bible. And they are convinced that their insights into spiritual matters make more sense than all sorts of things that they find in the Bible. And so they easily find themselves saying, well, this is clearly not the way God's going to deal with things. And they sort of they come and they sort of reinvent things that they find to be highly problematic, tr- troublesome or problematic. And they look for and they find other human authors who will articulate humanistic philosophy and they sprinkle that humanistic philosophy with various religious terms and they call themselves spiritually enlightened. It's common in our day to talk about, I'm spiritual. And then they have nothing more than humanistic thoughts that they've pretty much embraced full scale. People boast in their wisdom that they know better than even the Scriptures themselves. Other people measure their significance by the amount of money that they earn or the value of their total assets put together. Now there's a problem with that, and you know what the problem is. There's nothing wrong with having resources, nothing wrong with having wealth. The problem's not with wealth. The problem is what? If you glory in your wealth and you find your identity wrapped up in the amount of things you have acquired in this world, and you celebrate those things, the problem is what? That wealth, my friends, quickly fades away. Not too long ago when they had that earthquake and devastating tsunami in Japan, Newsday had an article which I cut out, and uh, I remember reading uh, the significance of it and thinking about it. They said that days and weeks after this disaster of people's homes just washed out to the sea, they found in the homes of a number of elderly people little home safes, little boxes, metal boxes, right, with the key and the lock and the combination, whatever, and people had those in their homes, and they all looked basically the same. They're all about the same size, about this size. And they found them scattered along the coastline, scattered everywhere, floating in the ocean, and they gathered them up, brought them to the police station, didn't have enough room to put them in the police station, put them in the police garage, as it began to stack up with hundreds of these safes filled with the life savings of many of these fishermen who lived along the shore. Not because they didn't trust banks, because of the convenience of having their money right there. And they had no way of knowing now how to return these things to anybody because it was not identified. It was cash in these boxes. What a metaphor for how quickly money can disappear. It can be washing out to the sea. You say, well, it's not just that, but money can also be what? Stolen. It can be devalued. We certainly know that. Uh, Quickly, the stock market, who knows what's going to happen this week, right? Who knows what's going to happen to the markets this week? There's a lot of nervous people out there thinking that their identity is wrapped up in all this wealth. And eventually, what happens? Eventually, your wealth is going to be inherited by the next generation. 
my mother at our family vacation, we had a little family reunion, she kept saying, I'm having a great time. I'm spending your inheritance. <laughs> it's funny. When you think about it, right? It's funny. Listen to this verse, Psalm 49, verse 10. Psalm 49, verse 10. Wise men die, and the stupid and selfless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Deal with it. It's the truth. So to boast and to brag and to glory in your wealth is really stupid. It makes no sense. Then other people, with Jeremiah's admonition, Thus says the, God, says the Lord, don't be boasting and pride yourself in your own strength. That's such a subtle thing for people to do. Some people glory in their physical strength. They're all into working out, the perfect body. They got, you know, the, the eight-pack, the, what, a six-pack abs and all this stuff. And they've got, taken all their supplements. They got massive muscles and they're trying to make a big statement about who they are. There are other people who glory in their power that they've gained in the political realm or power that they've gained in the corporate realm with the particular position that they have achieved and, oh, they've climbed the ladder. Look how high they've, 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 they've reached. And others who are glorying in their athletic strength and how they can perform and, and do amazing achievements. But my friend, the political and the corporate and even the sports winds change and elections happen and there are corporate corporate takeovers and mergers and layoffs and downsizing and all that stuff and your world and your position can easily be removed and you find yourself facing the situation of it's no longer yours and eventually you get old by the way and all that strength turns into flab i know wait till you turn 50 When we as humans glory in our wisdom and our power and our riches, we have lost sight of the greatness of the God who has created all things and is the source of everything in this world. And that's what is the message of Jeremiah 9. He is burdened and he is saying to these people, listen, compared to me, God says, you are foolish, impoverished, and weak. Don't be going around boasting about how great you are. And I would just say this, you've got to read Romans chapter 11 and the last few verses of that great chapter in which we read these words, all the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You cannot measure how deep is the wisdom of God. Our our wisdom is like this. And you cannot measure the wisdom of God and His knowledge about everything. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory. Not to you. Not to me. Not to somebody else. Not to people who are billionaires. Not to people who are the big CEOs. They are not the people to glory in. Nobody should be glorying in yourself. Glory in God. That's the point of Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. And when we depend on our accomplishments and our abilities to provide for us the significance that we yearn for, to provide for us some sort of security that only God can give us, we place our faith in worthless idols. We bestow glory to the creature rather than to the Creator. 
our worship then focuses on rejecting the true God and we ourselves become the center of what we're worshiping. I find the comments of G.K. Chesterton quite insightful. He says, when we cease to worship the true God, who deserves to be worshipped, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. And we as a culture, we are worshipping anything and everything so easily instead of the God who is the source of all things. And so Jeremiah is a call to say, listen, don't be... Give, bearing evidence that you just have this superficial knowledge about me and glory in yourself, glorying in your abilities or your assets or your achievements or your goodness. Because why? Letter D. Because all of this is what robs God of His glory. We are robbing God of His glory when we do that. He alone deserves to be glorified. And it leaves us with a false sense of importance a false sense of security, and a false sense of significance if we define our lives by measuring how valuable and important we are apart from God. How easy it is to do that, isn't it? You can always find somebody you think, well, I'm smarter than he is, or i got more money than they do, or I'm a person that's stronger than they are. Gee, they can't do anything. We always can find somebody to lift this up a little bit But my friends, you look at God as the source of all things and you get your bearings on Him, you find yourself saying, I don't have anything to boast about. I'm a wretched weakling who deserves condemnation. Let's not stop there, my friend. Let's look at, secondly, what the passage goes on to say in verse 24. We find in verse 24 the indicators of a genuine knowledge of God. Rather than making much of ourselves, God calls us to glory in Him. And those who truly know God are going to boast of Him. They're going to to boast of His greatness. And knowing God, he says in this text, we need to be careful here now, he doesn't mean knowing a lot of facts about God. Clearly, all these people of Jeremiah's generation, they could list off for you a number of facts about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had been there, done that, heard it all. They could rattle that stuff off. But you need to understand here, there's a big difference between knowing about somebody, having a casual understanding and facts about them, versus really knowing them. Here's an example. When I was in high school, uh, I had the opportunity to have received some award they gave out uh, for our high school, so I was the one that received it. And so they said, you're going to be invited to go down to receive the award presented to you by the governor of the state of West Virginia, and uh, which was in the town that I grew up in, the, 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 uh, the state capital. And so we went down there, and uh, all these other high school kids were there, and they were giving out these certificates. And so I met, shook hands with the governor at the time, Governor Moore. And, uh, you know, the media was there, and I thought, oh, my word, this is a big deal. Now, I had heard about the Governor Moore. I knew who he was. I shook his hand. He said my name. Would you say I knew him? He didn't know me. I'm a nobody, some kid from high school, but, and I knew of him, but we didn't know each other very well at all. Sort of glad I didn't. The guy, years later, went to prison. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> so what's the point? The point is, it's important to understand the word used here by Jeremiah, the Hebrew word know. To know someone in Hebrew is not just a bunch of facts you know about them. 
But to know means that there is a personal relationship. To know means that there is more than just mental awareness about something or someone, but it's an intimate relationship. So I use the verse in Amos 3, verse 2, where God says to His people, You only have I known among all the families of the earth. What's He saying? I have known you in an intimate, personal way. I have had interaction with you in a very significant way, on a deep level with you all these years. He's not saying I don't know anything about the Hittites and the Jebusites and all that stuff. He's talking about this intimate involvement. And in Genesis chapter 4, the same Hebrew word, or verse 17 of the same chapter of Genesis 4, Adam knew his wife conceived, bore a child. It's an intimate interaction. And so rather than making much of idols and our own areas of strength, God reminds us in this passage that there is nothing and no greater privilege than knowing Him, having personal interaction with Him, having a relationship with Him in which we are truly known and we know Him in regular, significant enjoyment of each other. Knowing God, my friend, is the only thing worthy of truly boasting about. To really knowing God. There's a vast difference between knowing about God, as I said, and knowing God. God loved us so much, He sent His one and only Son to rescue us from our idolatrous, self-worshipping ways, which results in what? Spiritual death. We're cut off from God, and, and we are living our life apart from God. We, don't, we sort of define God, the God that we want to serve and, and follow. And what does God do? He sends Jesus Christ to give Himself to pay the debt of our sin, to rescue us from ourselves and from our sin. And Jesus teaches a very fascinating insight into the nature of eternal life which He came to provide. John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. He says that they may, what? Know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. He talks about what? No. Not just intellectual knowing of facts. He's talking about have a personal, significant, ongoing relationship of interaction and enjoyment with one another. And self-absorbed idolaters like you and me don't deserve to know God. And we will not know God if we're absorbed in ourselves and our own idolatrous ways. But God on His own initiative provided the only just means whereby we can have a relationship with Himself. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all. The just one, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous or unjust ones in order that He, what? That he might bring us to God and that we might know Him and have a relationship with Him in a significant way. In the 31st chapter of the book of Jeremiah, which you find just pages further on there, in chapter 31, we read of Jeremiah announcing that it is God's intention to ratify a new covenant A new covenant whereby the Messiah will die and provide His own blood, His own spilling of His own blood, which will seal and ratify this covenant. A covenant that will have these kinds of benefits if you'll repent of your sin and you'll trust and transfer your faith and trust in Jesus Christ the Messiah. He says this in Jeremiah 31, 34. God says, they shall all, what? Know me not know about me, they will all know me from the least 
to the greatest of them, for I will what? Forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Wow. You talk about something to boast about. (laughs) That is something to boast about, my friend. Not how much money you have or how powerful you think you are. Boasting is the proper response for this undeserving rebels like you and me who are blessed with that kind of undeserved blessing of knowing God through Jesus Christ. Boasting that we know God makes all the sense in the world, my friend. Why? Because the more you truly know God, and the more you understand not the God of your imagination, but the true God, the God who reveals Himself in the, in the Scriptures and in the person of Jesus Christ, you are going to glory in the unmatched excellence of letter B, of His glory, of His glorious character. The more you know God, the more you're going to be impressed with His character. And that's what He's reminding of His readers here, His audience, in verse 24 of Jeremiah 9. He speaks of God and glorying in His loving kindness. Hebrew word here used is found 245 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a term that speaks and is is very difficult to to, uh, translate. It's translated with these words, covenant loyalty, steadfast love, or unfailing devotion, or merciful love. All those are different ways of translating this one term in, in, in the translation we're looking at, loving kindness. It's a term that means God freely Not because he's coerced or obligated. He freely chooses to exhibit absolute fidelity to his covenant obligations. That is, when he makes and commits himself to his people, he says, I don't have to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm not going to go back on my commitment. Period. And I'm going to show you grace. Because I am a gracious God who keeps my word. That's basically what he's saying. And so his devotion is not dependent upon our faithfulness and our performance. Praise God. <laughs> it's not dependent on us performing in a certain way. It's based on his choice to deal with us in grace. So he deals with his people in such a way that he shows them again and again, I'm going to stand by my promises here. You can count on it. Even though you wander, go astray, even though you make foolish choice, even though you blurt out in this way, even though you turn your back on me here, I'm still going to deal with you based on grace. So he commits himself to his people no matter what. It reminds me of how God, even though his people that he showed all of this favor to, how many centuries, how many prophets, how many ways in which he tried to deal with them, they eventually did what? He sends his own son, here's the Messiah on the scene, and what do you read in John 1? He came into his own He came. He came in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God in flesh. He comes to His own people. They received Him not. Don't want you. Can't be bothered with you. We reject you. We'll put you to death on the cross. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in Jesus' name. That, my friend, is loving kindness. (laughs) That's the loving kindness of God. No matter what they did, he said, here I am anyway, I'm going to die for you anyway. That's how much I love you. My friend, do you ever boast about that kind of love? You ever boast about a God that is so gracious toward you that you just 
can't get over it. Every time you think you have to do something to earn his, his love, you're reminded, what a stupid thing. I'll never do enough to earn his love. Because why? He's full of loving kindness. He deals with me in loving kindness. Jeremiah also says that God is a God of judgment, which I understand to mean a just judge. God seeks out wrongdoers and He punishes them. He delivers and vindicates those who are righteous. And God has demonstrated His commitment to justice through the work of Christ on the cross. He does not sweep our sins under the carpet. He doesn't just say, oh, let's just forget that and ignore it. You know, we'll sort of not draw a lot of attention to that. No, God is a God of justice. And Romans 3, verses 25 and 26 remind us that God displayed Jesus as a satisfying sacrifice for sin. Satisfying justice. Satisfying what was needed to be done in order to make it fair and right. He satisfied the wrath of God for our sin so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul wrote to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 6. He says, May it never be that I would boast except in one place, in one thing that God has done, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. I should boast in that cross, man, because God is a God of justice, and He has dealt with my sin in a just way so that He can justify me and not compromise His standards of justice. I can be fully forgiven, and His wrath can be fully satisfied. God imputes the righteousness of Christ to sinners who repent and believe, and our sin is imputed to Christ. He did not overlook our sins. He condemned our sins on Christ on that cross. And the result is we're justified. We are declared right with God. We are free from condemnation. And God will never hold our sins against us. He will never require us to earn merit to somehow compensate for our sins in many ways that we have broken His standards and laws and that we are committed even after we're saved. It's all been totally put upon Christ. Can you boast about that, my friend? Can you glory in the God who's done that? Or are you going to glory in yourself? Saying, well, i got to try a little harder, i got to be a little better so that I can be and compare myself to another person and feel like I'm more righteous than they are. Glory in God. Glory in the God who is not only just and who is also full of loving kindness. Thirdly, real quickly, follow me here. Those who know God also glory in the fact that He is righteous. God always does what is R-I-G-H-T. Right. He always does what's right. That's what righteous means. God always acts with fairness and equity. And He will be sure to make all the wrongs right someday. He's faithful. He's not going to fail to do what's right. He will conform to the standard of what's right and wrong, right and true. He does not lie. He is reliable. He is trustworthy. He is full of integrity. He is the one who rules, and He never abuses that power. What a God. We ought to boast in Him. I don't have time to expand that right now, but I want to go to my last point here. Here's the last point. Knowing God means that those who truly know Him eventually get to the point where they begin to imitate the God they know. One of the indicators that someone knows God is that they so glory in His committed love, His loving kindness, and His justice, and His integrity, that they desire to be like Him 
and to live in agreement with what he's really like and not do things that they know full well are going to cause him to be grieved. That means they move in that direction. It doesn't mean they'll ever accomplish that on their own, not actually do that, but we desire to do it, and we desire to try to become more like him. So look, for example, think of this imitation now as a partial imperfect imitation for those who love God as we increasingly conform our lives to his will and to his ways. Hosea 6, verse 6 says, I delight, God says, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. I delight in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What's he saying? I delight for you when you live your life in a way that honors me, and not just go through the motions of doing religious rituals, just out of habit and requirement. God wants his people with whom he enjoys a relationship to lay aside those traits, those habits that we hang on to, uh, that are at odds with his character, replace them over time with increasingly those habits and those actions and responses and th- ways of thinking that reflect his character and moral traits. Now take just a moment, real quickly, stay with me now, this is a very important point. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Sorry I didn't look up the page number, but Ephesians 4, verse 1. Paul starts a thought here. He's going to get interrupted in his thought. Before one says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And he continues on expanding that, which you ought to read sometime. The rest of chapter 4 talks about what that looks like. Very practical implications. But then look at chapter 5, verse 1, where he hammers the same thing home again. Therefore... 5, one, chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And he expands on that course, talking about walking in love and doing what we ought to be doing. The point is what? If you are claiming God as your Father and you're in relationship with Him and you know Him through Jesus Christ, then we're called more and more to imitate what God is like. And that's why Jeremiah was so grieved over the people of his day who were boasting about themselves, doing things that full well offended God, all the while claiming that they were followers or adherents of this God of Israel. And, and he's saying in this text, look, if you really know me, don't you think you want to at least aim your life in the direction that's going to be something that would reflect what I'm like? Because God says what? I delight in the things of loving kindness and justice and righteousness. Now let me just give you a real quick application here. And you can think more about how this looks like in your life, especially in Ephesians 4 and 5. That's your homework assignment. You want to really think through some practical things. But listen to this. I came across this in a book by McDonald. I don't even remember his first name. Sorry. Uh, he says this. God is, if God is just and fair and impartial, about this idea of God is righteous, righteousness, then we need to also be the same as his representatives. And here's a verse. 1 John 3.10. 1 John 3.10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. That is, the general, the general uh, characteristic of their life is that they are righteous. You mean, what does that mean? Listen to what he says here. This will mean that we will be righteous in all of our dealings. We will be scrupulously honest. Our word will be our bond. 
We will avoid anything in the way of shady deals, tax, income tax evasion, bribery, cheating, law-breaking, false weights or measures. We will be impartial, causing our benefits to reach the just and the unjust, that we treat people fairly, no matter who they are. We will not judge by appearance. We will judge with righteous judgment. We do not pad the expense account, and we do not swear, uh, sorry, and we swear to our own hurt, and we do not change. Psalm 15, 4. That is what? That if you make a promise and it becomes difficult to keep that promise, you're going to deal with that difficulty and you're going to stick with that promise because you said you would. You follow through with agreements and contracts and business dealings, regardless of what it may cost you. Why? Because God is a God who is righteous. He does what is right. He calls us as His people to follow the same pattern. Why? Because we boast of Him. (laughs) He is so great. He is so awesome. He is so gracious toward us. His loving kindness. He shows to us. He has demonstrated His justice in in the cross of Christ. Then why wouldn't I want to know Him? Why wouldn't I want to live in ways that would, what? Glorify Him. Make much of Him. And that's the privilege we have for everyone who knows God is to live in such a way that others might also come to know Him as we live lives that move and move more and more by God's grace toward the direction of imitating Him. May God help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you today. We make our boast and we glory in you today, Lord. For you are a God of loving kindness. Oh, how we thank you that you do not give up on us. How we thank you that you show us grace and you're committed to dealing with us in grace until we finally, Lord, reach the end. And that you do not wait for us to perform well before you will show us grace. Father, we thank you that you're also a God of justice, a God of righteousness. And today, Lord, may it be true of all of us here today. May we all say collectively, we make our boast of you. We glory in you, God, not in ourselves. We have nothing that we ought to be boasting about, Lord. We are people who have fallen far short. We have so many areas of our lives that are weak and pitiful and lacking compared to you. And so, Father, forgive any and all of us, Lord, for our own idolatrous ways in which we make much of ourselves, even to the point where oftentimes, Lord, we refuse to accept and believe that you would love us because we're still trying to improve ourselves. Lord, help us to let go of that idol and to claim the love that Christ has demonstrated on that cross and to truly know you and enjoy the privilege of eternal life. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today that's never come to Christ and never been wowed and overwhelmed and overjoyed by the greatness of his grace and mercy and love, his truth, his justice, Lord, do it today, I pray. And may all of us boast of you and therefore imitate you, become people who know you, and become more like you because of your grace and because of your wonderful dealings with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing our closing song.
the wise man boast in his wisdom or let the strong man boast in his strength let not the rich man boast in his riches but let the humble come and give to say it is our desire to live in such a way that it's evident that we are boasting in you. We're not trying to impress other people, Lord, with how good we are. We want to live in such a way that people become impressed with how you've changed us to be people who are not what we used to be because we are people who truly know you through Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that we would live in such a way that you would be glorified, you would be magnified, that people would make much of you and nothing about us. 
And we, Lord, want to be mirrors that reflect and deflect all of the attention onto you and give you all the praise. Amen.